Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 370, Reduce to Obedience. If I may, I'd like to start with my very own quick advert this time. This is for membership of the History of England, the Shedcasts of Fable and Legend. Membership is as cheap as chips, just £4 a month, available at thehistoryofengland.co.uk. And you get a library of over 100 hours of Shedcasts on a variety of topics, too numerous to mention, and biographies like Margaret Beaufort, Eleanor of Aquitaine, William Marshall and John Hawkwood. Plus, we are just launching out on an extravaganza called Party, Politics and Parliament, a description of the development of British Parliament and party politics all the way through from early days to the year 2000 in six episodes. Number one is already out. This is a development of an idea by my mate Royfield Brown, and an expansion of the party politics series we did together for Things That Made England. So if that interests you, head along to thehistoryofengland.co.uk and look for the option to become a member and sign up. Also, of course, you'd be supporting me to deliver this podcast and you can get the History of England ad-free. So many good reasons to join. Now then, in early 1638, while Charles was struggling and failing to stay on top of the situation in Scotland, he received a welcome shot in the arm when his mother-in-law came to stay. Now, I understand that mother-in-law jokes are the preserve now of history and Les Dawson. I think I've dimly heard that remarking that I hadn't spoken to the mother-in-law for 18 months because I don't like to interrupt is now probably 
unacceptable. So I will simply tell you about Henrietta Maria's mum, Marie de Medici, Queen Mother of France, who had been ousted from power some time ago by her son, the King, and Cardinal Richelieu. Presumably, Charles and Henrietta had been fighting. Henrietta Maria had written to her mum with something on the lines of He fought with me again. I'm coming to stay with you. To which the mother-in-law replied, No, dear, he must pay for his mistake. I'm coming to stay with you. Arf, and indeed arf, possibly another unacceptable gag. Sorry for that. So, Marie de Medici arrived, and if you lived in London, you would not have been able to miss it. There's an engraving of her arrival, which is a vast procession through Cheapside, all tidied up with barriers arranged in front of boarding, decorated and hung out with cloths and pictures, spectators thronging in the streets trying to get a look, ogling as they saw Marie grandly and flamboyantly demonstrate to the grubby English exactly what they were missing in terms of French civilization. Marie's vast entourage, maintained from Charles's pocket, incidentally, included six coaches, hundreds of horses, monks and confessors by the hodful, peers and princesses, dwarfs and dogs. She cut a dash. More than that, enough dash for a Morse code SOS that Charles must have wanted to send. Why am I telling you all of this? Well, the visits of folks like Marie and the goings-on at Somerset House from her daughter caused your good English Protestant palpitations about the possible religion of their king. Marie did not see her job as one of fostering careful diplomatic relations and smoothing out religious conflict, oh dear me, no. She came to pour scorn and to flout. She went around telling whomever would listen that she was hoping for Charles's conversion to the one true church. Her daughter's Catholic masses were meanwhile public, well attended and not at all kept in the background quietly. The impact of occasions like this are incalculable, but in the air of England at this time, as news filtered from Scotland, were feelings not necessarily supportive of the King's troubles. For many, there was an uncomfortable feeling that their religious brothers and sisters were under attack in Scotland. And Marie's very visible presence raised the heat just one more degree. Charles at this point seems to have realised that it was not going to be good enough to just shout at everyone in Scotland, expect them to slap their foreheads, come to their senses, realise that what they've been doing wrong and getting into line, tugging forelocks furiously as they went, that this was a situation now that he needed to manage and have a strategy for and that the Earl of Traquair was obviously a busted flush by this stage. So there were a few people he might have selected to replace Traquair. Let me try three on you. First, there's James Graham, the Earl of Montrose. I doubt Charles considered him for an instant, actually. Montrose, though, one day to be his greatest ally in Scotland and a man who could hardly think better of himself, I suspect would have thought himself an entirely good choice. But as it happens, Charles had already hacked him off in 1636, when Montrose had come to court and Charles had done nothing but offer his hand coldly to be kissed and then turned away. Montrose, in fact, had been one of the first to sign up to the Covenant and would soon be imposing it on the good citizens of Aberdeen, accompanied by a spot of bloodletting. So, not going to be him for Charles then. Second, there's Archibald Campbell. 
He's actually called Lord Lorne at this point, but all this name-changing is way too confusing, so let's just call him what he will become known as, the Earl of Argyll, head of Clan Campbell. He will be one of the most influential figures throughout the Scottish Revolution, effectively its leader. Since the fall of the Macdonalds as Lords of the Isles in the 15th century in the Highlands and Islands, the Campbells had been agents of the Crown in the Southern Highlands, and roundly hated they were by most clans who had suffered at the hands of their empire building. Even now, if you meet a Macdonald, I think there is a chance that they'll mutter, Never trust the Campbell. Argyll was a firm Presbyterian Calvinist, but as yet he had not actually signed the Covenant. He was keeping his options open. But look, his dad had converted to Catholicism. Charles didn't know him well, so it's not going to be him. There'd be a bill to pay for that decision. He chose instead a good friend, James Hamilton, the Marquis of Hamilton. He was what I suppose you might call a London Scot these days. He lived mainly at the King's Court in Westminster. However, he did still have substantial lands in southern Scotland, and so was not a bad choice necessarily, although he gets a thoroughly rotten press from historians, the lad. Clearly, I am not as well as informed an observer as they are, but it seems to me he doesn't really deserve that. Despite a few mess-ups, he will serve Charles very loyally for a long time despite at one stage some royally ungrateful treatment. Also, Charles didn't really give him a good hand to play, practically a Yarborough in terms of bridge parlance. For those of you non-lovers of the game, a Yarborough is a hand with no court cards at all, no points, and so called because a certain Earl of Yarborough used to bet money and give odds of a thousand to one against the occurrence of such a hand. History does not relate, or it doesn't to me, if he ever drew one. Anyway, what I'm saying is, Hamilton had been given a bum hand by his boss, essentially. The reason for that was that Charles was cross, and Charles was grumpy, and Charles had nothing but contempt for people he saw as simple rebels. In his hand, he also had the advice of the fighty Wentworth, his view was that he should send a viceroy to Scotland, impose English law on the lot of them and have done. Hamilton, although not well versed in Scottish politics, having been absent for so long, did not take long once he'd arrived there to read the runes. One of his talents was that he was refreshingly brave in telling Charles how it really was, unlike Traquair, who avoided bad news as much as possible and tried to gloss it. So Hamilton wrote to Charles and told him now, there was no way he could get what he wanted, or at least not without force. Of which Charles, of course, was notably short. Hamilton wrote a letter in June 1638, which it seems to me demonstrates a pretty fine judgment, and that if Charles forced the issue, he would risk all three of his kingdoms. The conquering totally of this kingdom will be a difficult work, there are so many malicious spirits among them that no sooner will your back be turned, they will be ready to do to you as we have done here, which I will never call by another name than rebellion. England wants not its own discontents, and I fear much help they cannot give. Charles's view in return was uncompromising. So long as the covenant is in force, I have no more power in Scotland 
than as a Duke of Venice, which I will die rather than suffer. So there we have it, a man prepared for martyrdom before compromise that reduced his authority. You heard it first, here in 1638. But when Hamilton went north again in August, I am surprised to tell you that it appears his silvery tongue with his master had actually done some work. Finally, finally, he had some concessions to give to the Scots. He'd temporarily withdraw the prayer book, the canons, and suspend the five articles of Perth. He'd refer questions of whether bishops should exist to a general assembly of the Kirk, which he agreed should be held in November. And to get round the covenant, he offered up his own confession of faith or covenant, which he could live with, but hopefully would be enough of a compromise for the Scots to live with too. Well, would you Adam and Eve it? My gob is well and truly smacked, and I expect yours is too. So much for Charles not being able to compromise then. Hail Charles the martyr, lover of peace. Well, he can pick himself up from the floor. Here are the instructions that Charles also wrote to Hamilton at the same time in private, telling him... I expect not anything can reduce that people to obedience, but force only. In the meantime, your care must be to dissolve the multitude, and to that end I give you leave to flatter them with what hopes you please, so you engage me not against my grounds, and in particular that you consent neither to the calling of Parliament nor General Assembly, until the covenant be disavowed and given up. There's an expression, I think, Hope for peace, but prepare for war. Or maybe I've just misquoted. Something like that, anyway. Anyway, let me offer up a new expression to cover what Charles was doing here. Promise them peace until you've prepared to give them war. From here, Charles was preparing for war, but knew full well he would not be able to gather an army until the next year, 1639. This incident in Scotland is instructive for the future, which is why I'm going to go into it a little bit. Number one, although it's argued that for sure Charles can compromise. And actually that's true, he does at times, and at times genuinely. But it tends to be too little too late when the agenda has moved on. Maybe a year ago something emollient would have worked. The King's Covenant, for example, has been dismissed as a feeble ruse. But even then, even now, it gathered 28,000 signatures. Twelve of those were around Aberdeen, which is a reminder that there was more than one opinion in Scotland. But it was too late now to deflect the Covenanters. Too much water had flowed. Number two, then, Charles would never compromise on matters of principle on which he firmly believed his honour and soul depended. Which is kind of fair enough, I suppose. To others, this would mean he seemed untrustworthy, Charles didn't believe that. These people were rebels. He was God's anointed. His honour and the well-being of his subjects depended on not betraying the basis of his election by God. So it was in his mind acceptable to dissemble. And he was prepared to listen to advice about tactics and vary them, but never about the principle. The prudential part of any consideration will never be found in opposition to the conscientious, he once said. He's not a stupid man. It's no good dismissing him as a fool. So he understands the faction in Scotland surprisingly well, despite his lack of understanding that they were acting on conviction rather than from simple malice. So, for example, he explained to Hamilton that to give way too easily would actually be counterproductive and dangerous. Because if he did that, 
it would stop him building an effective party because his supporters would be disheartened by his concessions. And Charles would prove an excellent party leader when that stage comes. The English will be fooled over and over until they realise this thing about compromise. The Scots were sharper, much sharper. They looked at the format of the King's Covenant, they looked at the small print, and they saw that it had to be sworn for the maintenance of religion as it is already or presently avowed. Oh, right. So the bishops have to stay, the Book of Common Prayers and the canons have to stay, the five articles of Perth have to stay too. It was a trap, and they were not fooled. And so, to revolution, the General Assembly went ahead without the covenant being disavowed before it. As progress went from bad to worse, and King's Commissioner Hamilton tried to control it, he eventually had to admit that he could not. So, he tried to dissolve the Assembly. With enormous dignity, he stood in the Assembly and commanded everyone's attention. Nothing done here in this Assembly should be of any force to bind His Majesty's subjects, and I, in His Majesty's name, discharge this court to sit any longer. He then drew himself up, withdrew in all His Majesty, strode authoritatively to the door to leave, and found it had been locked. I mean, I'm sorry, I have some sympathy here with Hamilton. Think of him desperately trying to open the door while the delegates sniggered behind him. And while he did all this, you might expect Argyle, as a member of the Scottish Privy Council, to follow him, but no, he sat on his hands and stayed. Nonetheless, he would continue to attend Privy Council meetings until March 1639, but his loyalty now was suspect, as well as that of his father's religion. When Hamilton finally managed to fight his way out of the door, the Assembly ignored the dissolution and visited a revolution on the King's head. You might be interested to know, incidentally, that while an assembly of the Kirk sounds very much a religious thing like convocation, and it is, yet of the 240 members, 140 were laymen, lairds, and so on. Anyway, it declared assemblies held since 1606 were unlawful because they'd included the king, who should not be involved in ecclesiastical matters in any way in their view. The Book of Common Prayer, the canons, were also declared unlawful. Bishops were removed from the church and excommunicated. And it was decided the assembly could meet whenever it chose and did not have to be called by the king. Now this was rebellion, pure and simple. It must now be war. Now, I have held Charles to task for not being honest in his dealings and fully expecting to put things right by using the might of England to reverse any concessions apparently wrung from him. But it should be noted that while he was preparing for war, the Covenanters were doing exactly the same thing. And they had a couple of advantages. The first was in the person of Alexander Leslie, who had completed a very distinguished military career, fighting for the Swedes in the Thirty Years' War, rising to the level of field marshal and he had their gratitude for it too. It helped the Scots buy up quantities of arms and ammunition from Protestant Europe, the Danes and Swedes in particular. The second advantage lay in the very effective organisation the Covenanters put together, which harnessed the full resources of their kingdom, 
They established county commissions which brought together the elders of each community working with each presbytery to raise taxes. Although Scotland was a relatively poor country, therefore, they maximised the resources they did have. And because of that, they would punch above their weight. And the very poverty of Scotland helped as well in other ways. Maybe as many 25,000 men had travelled abroad to give them a better income by fighting and fighting for the Protestant cause. And as fighters, they were highly valued in continental service. So there was a body of trained men available to the Covenanters to be recruited. In January 1639, then, Charles announced he would put together an army to impose his will on Scotland. He was furious, and in his cold fury, he could see nothing but vengeance. He issued a proclamation condemning the Covenanters as traitors and had a propaganda leaflet from them publicly burned by a hangman and swore the Covenanters were aiming to set up a republic, the worst possible insult in Charles's lexicon, but very much not the case, it must be pointed out. The Covenanters wanted no such thing and would remain resolutely loyal to the idea of monarchy when the English don't. Charles had a plan. To be honest, it could be considered a somewhat overcomplicated plan, but it was exactly the sort of thing likely to make an armchair general feel confident. The trident of vengeance and righteousness to be wielded by Charles was to have three tines as trident centre. The first tine stood in Ireland. Not Wentworth, which would have been a reasonable guess, I have to say, but Wentworth, in fact, said his forces were so split up and divided at this point, he couldn't afford to bring them to England. Nope, he was instead one Randall MacDonald. And I love this character, because his actions in the revolution show a corner of the complexity of the eddies and currents that ran beneath the surface of British politics. So I have mentioned the antagonism between the MacDonalds and the other Western Highland clans and the Campbell clan of Argyll and the South West Islands. The MacDonalds shared close links and ancestry with the MacDonald clan in Ireland, who were effectively an offshoot, who had invaded and colonised territory in Ulster about 100 years before. Their current leader was Randall MacDonald, the Earl of Antrim, and it's complicated. Antrim's father had taken part in Tyrone's rebellion against Elizabeth, but then, rather than fleeing with the earls in 1609, he had stayed, made his peace, and been granted the earldom of Antrim with royal title to land. Under his and his son's hands, the clan and family had done well by keeping a foot in both camps. Randall was educated in France, but spent ten years at Charles's court, and in 1635 married Buckingham's widow. He participated in James's plantation of Ireland and leased a lot of land to Protestant Scottish lowland settlers. However, he remained Catholic, supported the Gaelic language and values, and brought his son up in them as well. One of the stories he told him was the family memory that their lands in Scotland had been stolen from them by the Campbells. He was also enormously rich, although like Buckingham, having a big income didn't really mean he had a lot of money lying around because, of course, he spent it, and then some, building, gambling. These aristocrats, really. Tusk. Still, I suppose you can't take it with you and all that. He had a reputation for being vain, untrustworthy, and a bit of a thicky, but also a bit of a looker. So why am I telling you all this? Well, firstly, because he proposed to raise an army and take it to invade the highlands to dis- 
extract the Covenanters. Charles was delighted and promised him whatever of Argyle's lands that he could recover. This was encouraging to Antrim for sure. It seems likely it encouraged him less because it would be helping his rightful king, although that might have been part of it, but more because here was a way to recover the stolen MacDonald inheritance from the hated Campbells. This is a thing to remember about Highland politics, just as a general point. The local politics between chief and clans in the Highlands mattered a lot more than the fortunes of Scotland and England as a whole. And there's a lot of history in that happens quite frequently. So, in clans fighting for Edward I, and clans allying with Henry VIII, for example. Anyway, unfortunately, the news also reached Archibald Campbell, the Earl of Argyll, that his king was happily prepared to see him lose his lands and fortune, that the ends of royal power justified the means of knifing the Campbells between the ribs. So, Argyll signed the covenant, withdrew from Privy Council meetings in Scotland, and was lost to Charles's cause. Wentworth, it should be noted, thought the plan and Antrim himself to be a complete waste of space and would have nothing at all to do with it. He was right. Antrim failed completely to deliver anything at all for Charles in 1639. The second Tyne was to be Hamilton. Charles was convinced that Scotland held many that were still loyal to the historic House of Stuart, and he wasn't wrong in that. In the north, the Gordons, the Catholic Earls of Huntley, were less than keen on the Covenant. So, Hamilton was to lead an amphibious force with 5,000 men, would land at Aberdeen, hook up with Huntley, who would have similar numbers, and march south on Edinburgh. This plan also unravelled, or at least partially unravelled. The Covenanters were well aware of Huntley. In early March, Montrose arrived in Aberdeen, Huntley and the town submitted, and Huntley was taken to Edinburgh practically a prisoner. Hearing of this in his fleet on the way, Hamilton changed his plans mid-journey and decided instead to land south of Edinburgh at Leith, where there was apparently sunshine. There, apparently, he met his mum, Lady Anne Cunningham. The Marchioness of Hamilton was a fervent Covenanter and was appalled at her son's actions. She served as a colonel in the Covenanter army with responsibility to organise the defence of Scotland's east coast and led her regiment under the banner for God, the King, Religion and the Covenant. Let Anne's banner serve as a reminder that the Covenanters fervently believed in the importance of the King, so long as they swore to the Covenant and lived by its terms. Anyway, when her lad Hamilton appeared and tried to land, a contemporary described her response. She goeth in armour, and with pistol by her side ready charged, and wishes him there, saying she would bury the bullets in his bowels. Being told publicly by mum that you're not the Messiah, just a very naughty boy, is not a good look for a warrior. Also, there were way too many Scottish soldiers there under the command of Alexander Leslie, so Hamilton beat a hasty retreat. However, his mission was not entirely thwarted. His ships remained in the Firth of Forth, cruising forward and back, blockading to prevent supplies reaching the Covenant army. Now, supplying an early modern army was not trivial, so this also was not trivial. Still, that's the end, effectively, of the second Tyne. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. 
But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. That left Charles with the central tine of the trident of vengeance and righteousness, the Army of England. And really, I mean, you could probably forget the other two tines. England has six or seven times the population of Scotland, and even more than that in wealth. So the wealth of a Scottish magnate was estimated to be similar to a successful member of the Yorkshire gentry. So really, Charles, had he good right to expect that this was something of a gimme? Surely the might of England would crush the Scots. He planned to raise an army of 20,000, 14,000 foot, 6,000 horse. Well, that seems not unreasonable, though... It is worth noting there were a few problems he had to overcome to boot. One is very unmeasurable, but surely important, and who knows, maybe the most important, which is heart and stomach. Scottish Covenanter hearts were fully in the game. English hearts, not so much. The idea of recruiting Catholics in Ireland and Scotland did not sit comfortably with most of the English, and they worried that far too many of the King's army officers were in fact Catholics as well, Plus, for many it seems that the Scots were simply doing what they wanted to do, roll back those Laudian reforms. We must needs go against the Scots for not being idolatrous, and we'll have no mass among them, complained a new sheet. In Herefordshire, Brilliana Harley wrote to her son, This year, 1639, is the year in which many are of the opinion that the Antichrist will begin to fall. The Lord say amen to that. Punishing the Scots, then, must have felt a bit like turkeys voting for Christmas, though of course that's an inappropriate metaphor for this time, for all sorts of reasons. So, there was reluctance which coloured everything about Charles's war effort in raising money, in signing up people to fight, in leading armies. For the Warwick House group that we've mentioned before, the likes of Warwick, Say and Seal, Pym, so on, this was a major tear being called to fight by their king. And there were signs that some of them went further than reluctance. One of the most fervently radical of them in religious terms was one Robert Greville, Lord Brooke. A Puritan, yes, but also a believer in complete toleration for all Protestants to worship as they wished. There's some evidence that he, Say and Seal, Warwick, Pym, were in correspondence with leaders of the Covenanters. The direct influence of this reluctance is unknowable, but it must be relevant, mustn't it? It seems to have been well known around the place that the Scots had influential supporters in England. The Countess of Westmoreland had her ear to the ground and wrote to a privy councillor with a warning that the Scots know our divisions and the strength of our own combinations, and they have a party among us, and we have none amongst them. The next problem, of course, was money. Charles had done surprisingly well, but the personal rule had depended not only on Western's clever financial management, but also on peace. Obviously, calling a parliament was out of the question, and meanwhile, at least John Hamden's refusal to pay and the ship money judgment was beginning to have an impact. The takings in 1639 had fallen dramatically, and collection of it was sucking up the Privy Council's time. 
there was a traditional levy called coat and conduct, which was payable when the king raised an army to provide clothes and expenses for soldiers. But the response to the tax was utterly feeble. Very few were prepared to pay yet another dodgy feudal tax. Now, the City of London was, of course, a surefire cash cow for the monarchy, a you-scratch-my-back-and-I'll-scratch-yours kind of relationship, loans given for trade concessions, that sort of thing. But not this time. Charles's treatment of the corporation over Ireland came home to roost, as London's Common Council point-blank refused to give any money, in regard of the many taxes imposed on them and the loss of their lands in Londonderry. Nonetheless, Charles did his best by targeting his traditional feudal rights and loyalties. He called for voluntary loans, sold lands, created monopolies, used treasury funds. He called for a feudal levy of the Lord's tenants and then allowed nobles to pay scootage. Scootage, eh? Shield tax. Does that ring any bells from the medieval episodes? It makes me feel sort of nostalgically weepy. It was, of course, the right for a noble to pay money in place of providing his quota of men and armour. Happy memories. In the end, Charles and the Privy Council did manage to raise a significant army of around 18,000 men, so not quite the full aim, but a pretty good number, and crucially managed to pay and feed them. There is much doubt, though, about their quality. The backbone was supposed to have been provided by the county militias of the 13 northernmost English counties. The trained bands, as they were called, were at least trained and mustered regularly, and they were supposed to provide their own arms, so they should be armed. The Lord's Lieutenant and Deputy Lord's Lieutenant of the counties were pretty keen on rolling out their men and drilling them hard, egad. But just like, I don't know, the third of Anglo-Saxon England, these men didn't sign up to fight wars far from home. No, they signed up to defend hearth and home and their communities, their own countries. So leaving the borders of the Shire was not in any way attractive to them. This led to a workaround called substitution. Once again, you organise for another person to go in your place. Fair enough. Except where would you find such people? And the answer, very often, was impressment. The prisons and poorer quarters were cleaned out. These people were generally neither physically fit nor committed to the cause. They would desert for two pins, or indeed for the promise of a pin. Something like half the army was composed of these people. As the army assembled north of Newcastle to face the Scottish army across the border, Charles called all his peers to York, a sort of feudal council and he shot north to join them. How much he perceived is not clear, but at least he must have begun to understand that he joined an army that left a lot to be desired. There was such a wide variety. So at one end of the scale, he'd have taken heart at Sir John Suckling, who had joined the army with some enthusiasm for his king. He recruited a regiment of a hundred young gentlemen and dressed them out in white doublets, scarlet breeches and coat, brave white feathers in their hats, and they were well armed. But they weren't typical. The majority were badly trained and a bit surly. The contingent from East Anglia was a case in point. When they arrived at Berwick, they were so notoriously ill-disciplined that their own officers were terrified of them, and they had good cause. Every so often, the men would take pot shots at their officers, presumably claiming they were just getting a bit, bit of useful practice. 
there was even a bullet hole in the king's tent. One of the knights in the army, Edmund Verney, carried out a long correspondence with his son, which has survived. His letters were not optimistic, not looking forward to the coming fight. I dare say there was never so raw, so unskilful, and so unwilling an army brought to fight. They are as like to kill their fellows as the enemy. Our army is but weak. Our purse is weaker, and if we fight with these forces, we shall have our throats cut. And to delay fighting long, we cannot, for want of money, to keep our army together. It seems certain that Charles picked up some of this negativity and lack of enthusiasm. He had already had a surprisingly frank exchange with one Thomas Wilsford, who commanded a horse contingent from Kent and was a former MP for Dover. So, Wilsford had told Charles on meeting him, If you think to make war with your own purse, you deceive yourself. The only way to prosper is to go back and call a parliament, so you shall have money enough and do your business handsomely. Charles played it cool. I can see Alec Guinness as we speak. He smiled and remarked, There were a lot of fools in the last parliament. Wilsford did not let it drop true. But there were wise men too, and if you let them alone, the wise men would have been too hard for the fools. Some would have feared what success in this war for the king would mean for their own futures. So Edmund Ludlow was the son of a Wiltshire knight and a future roundhead army commander, regicide, and a man who would be pursued relentlessly by Charles II's agents after the Restoration. He wrote that the gentry in the army were aware of how dangerous to the people of England a thorough success against the Scots might prove. In the face of all this, Charles at York decided that an oath of loyalty would be the thing to bond his leaders together and raise the spirits. Maybe for some it did, but for two in particular, it was simply another opportunity to express their dissent. Lords Brook and Say and Seal refused point-blank to take the oath claiming that a new oath could only be issued with the approval of Parliament. Here was the agenda for the Warwick House group. Excluded from Council of the King, the only way they could achieve change was through Parliament. And so at every opportunity, they would stress the necessity of calling a Parliament. They were imprisoned for a while at York for their pains. Charles pushed ahead and chose his commander, it was an appointment typical of his attitudes towards the nature of his kingship. He appointed the Heredity Marshal of England, a post that once upon a time would indeed have been filled by the leading warlord that England could provide. Once, a few centuries ago, but this was not that day. These days the post was held by Henry Howard, the Earl of Arundel, a man with absolutely zero military experience. In Charles's defence, however, he wasn't spoiled for choice, and he did appoint as deputy for Arundel the man who did have the most military experience there, the Earl of Essex, though, to be fair, this, his record wasn't that great either. Across the border, the Covenanters had managed to gather an army of 15,000. The way the story of this showdown is normally told is very much the way it had been going, actually, that the English army was a shambles, of poorly-led ne'er-do-wells, cold, hungry, ill-equipped and poorly-led, facing a tight, disciplined army of battle-hardened religious zealots, veterans of the Thirty Years' War, armed with the latest in military technology, capable of shooting a fly's eyebrows off at 400 yards. There is some truth in the characterisation, quite a lot, actually, 
but it is also easy to overstate it. The Scottish army was also populated by its fair share of unwilling soldiers a long way from home. Supply problems of food and pay were critical. The army was already suffering desertions, and without a quick conclusion, things might well have gone pear-shaped. However, they were without doubt much better led by Alexander Leslie, a commander of considerable experience and quality. The quality was to be quickly proved in what followed. So, the Earl of Holland was sent forward across the border with 3,000 horse to carry out a recce and find out about the enemy, and he quickly met a force commanded by Leslie himself. Holland sent a messenger with a haughty demand to Leslie to explain why he was so close to the English border with such a large army. In return, Leslie asked him what he was doing across the Scottish border with a large army, which it must be said is a thoroughly good question. Seriously dunked in the war of words, Holland decided to withdraw in the face of Leslie's superior numbers and scurried back to camp. Leslie followed and deployed on the heights of Dunn's Law, apparently ready to attack in full view of the English camp. He made sure he drew up in open order, with shallow lines, well spread out with banners flying. A bit like a bird, fluffing up its feathers to look big and scary, even though it is in fact a linnet. So, when the king and the English commanders looked at them through a telescope, they thought they saw a big and scary army of about 30,000 soldiers. Charles lost his nerve, and it must be said the people around him were hardly filling him with confidence either. He ordered the whole army to withdraw. Leslie's bluff had worked. The next thing to arrive at the king's tent was an offer from the Covenanters to negotiate. Leslie was as reluctant to cross the border to attack as the king's nobility was to fight. Meanwhile, in his other ear, Charles had the Earl of Bristol telling him that many of the peers were secretly preparing a petition to demand that the king call a parliament. This might have recalled in Charles's mind that exchange with Thomas Wilsford. So when the hand of truce was offered across the border, Charles snatched at it. The following negotiation started at Berwick on the 11th of June, and Charles showed that he had a talent for hard negotiation. He had a style of pursuing points in detail, relentlessly, pushing them and pushing them through, pushing with logic. Though if negotiation is in fact the art of reaching an agreement, both parties that can live with, it would be difficult to sustain the argument that he should genuinely be considered a good negotiator, but he does most certainly seem to have been no pushover. He confronted them with the radicalism of their own actions, defended his right to dissolve parliaments by forcing them to admit that the covenant gave them no way to decide how to balance their allegiance to Christ with their loyalty to their king, which is indeed a core contradiction at the heart of the covenant. Again, Charles was not a stupid man. The treaty signed on the 18th of June, known as the Pacification of Berwick, brought to an end a series of events known to history as the First Bishops' War, it's a slightly confusing title, I have to say, because there are no bishops involved in the war, which I'm sure would have deeply disappointed Bishop Odo of Bayer with his club of war, and nor was there any fighting, unless you include the duel being fought between the Earls of Holland and Newcastle, about the critically strategic matter of whose regimental colours should have precedence, an excellent example of the aristocracy's ability to really focus on the big issues. I suppose the title 
is because of the issue of the abolition of the episcopy, which was front and foremost. But maybe we could start a search for a more accurate title. The glow of satisfaction after the signature of the pacification didn't last very long. Under the terms, the king agreed to a general assembly of the Kirk and a parliament, the former with the power to agree all matters ecclesiastical and the, the latter all matters civil. In return, the Covenanters would disband their armies and they would hand back the royal castles that they had captured in the meantime, such as Edinburgh, for example. For this, they would get some stick when they got home. But nothing was really agreed about any of the substantive issues and Charles's wording carefully gave him plenty of wriggle room. So the Assembly and the Parliament were to be lawfully constituted. And since for Charles that meant bishops should be there, he could automatically simply reject any of it. But look, maybe they could sort out the detail through the Parliament and the Assembly, which Charles declared he would attend in person. For the moment, a draw had been achieved. Looking back on it, more than one historian, among them Conrad Russell and Richard Cust, have concluded that while it would have been a long, long shot, this first war was Charles's only chance to avoid an English Parliament, and that with an army for the moment in full pay and larger than the adversary, these are dice that maybe he should have thrown. But he did not choose to do so, and it's got to be as convincing an argument to say he was forced to back away at this point, while suggesting he should never have let the dispute get to this stage by introducing the hated Book of Common Prayer and Canons. Before everyone headed for home, there was one more act, because he intended to go to the General Assembly in Parliament. He summoned the 14 leading Covenanters to come and see him in Berwick, to have a bit of a wagging of chins to see what would happen at those events. So it is a sign of how little everyone trusted each other that most of the Covenanters simply refused to come. They thought there was a better than evens chance that Charles was going to imprison them. So only six turned up in response to their king's command. One of the six was the flamboyant James Graham, Earl of Montrose. Although the last time he and Charles had met it had been a disaster, as I say, this time, it appears they got on like a house on fire. In a good way, the sort of house fire where you're fixing to claim on insurance. Not that I'm advocating that, you understand, just figure of speech. Anyway, this is significant. Mark this with a bit of sticky tape or a post-it. Montrose was always a rather unlikely covenanter. It seems likely that it was at this meeting that Montrose pledged his service to his king. Watch this space. But anyway, for the moment, the talking and lack of fighting was done. The armies were dismissed and everyone headed for home. Charles would need to circle the wagons and decide fight or decide flight, negotiate or raise a new army. And one of those options needed money. That's all for this week. And next week, I am relaxing quietly. Don't forget to sign up to be a member of the History of England by going to thehistoryofengland.co.uk forward slash become a member. Until next time, thank you so much for listening, everyone, for your comments and support and everything. Good luck and have a great fortnight. <laughs>